Oh my goodness, you crazy son of a bitch. Do you have any idea what you've just done? You've just discovered the Marts and Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is the show that may or may not be an hour long based on your perception of time and how much I've got to say. So strap yourselves in and prepare your ears for the journey of a lifetime with your host of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour, me, you idiot. Welcome to the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour and welcome to episode number 67. I know I already welcomed you once at the very beginning of the show. Uh, just think of it as me welcome you, welcoming you to the overall experience of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour, but now specifically... I want to introduce you to episode number 67. We've done this 66 times already, and I've enjoyed each and every one of them. And number 67, I'm very happy to report to you, is going to be no different. Got a great show for you this week. Incidentally, I am recording this particular introduction on a, on Sunday afternoon, May 3rd, 2015. And I specify the date for you because last night, I, along with uh, my family, as well as the rest of the country, and by and large the rest of the world, sat down to watch the very much anticipated fight of the century between, between Foxy, it was so exciting, I can barely get my words correct. It was the much anticipated fight of the century between Floyd, Money Mayweather, and Manny Pac-Man Pacquiao. Uh, and I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention it, I guess, because it's uh, at the very least this week, even though, you know, I'm recording on a Sunday afternoon and you, presumably, if you're listening to this episode as soon as I've made it available to you, is the Monday after the fight. So it's still very fresh in the popular culture. So uh, so I figured I had to at least mention it. And, uh, you know, I don't know what you guys think. Uh, for Well, for me, like, uh, I was pretty much with most everybody else in the world. I think most all of us had the, uh, had more or less the, the, the same rooting interests going into it. I was rooting for Manny Pacquiao to win. I love, I love Pac-Man. But while I was rooting for Manny Pacquiao to win, I was expecting Floyd Mayweather to win. So, uh, and I know I wasn't alone in that sentiment where, you know, uh, rooting for Pacquiao, but was expecting Mayweather to win. However, you know, going to the boxing, uh, part of the fun is, you know, anything can happen. You never know. So I was holding out hope that while I was expecting Floyd Mayweather, Mayweather to win the fight, that Manny Pacquiao might, uh, you know, maybe he might pull some, uh, pull some, something amazing out of his bag of tricks and pull off the upset, but um, as I'm sure you've already heard, that did not happen. And uh, just as uh, the experts and the odd makers predicted, Floyd Mayweather won the fight. But again, the thing that I love about boxing, and I love boxing, by the way, I'm a very passionate, casual fan. You know, I, I don't follow the the sport on a daily or even a weekly basis. Uh, I mean, there was a time that I did follow it pretty closely, but, you know, I'm a casual fan. I get really excited for the big fights, but, um, you know, other than that, I I don't keep up with it. Um, But I do enjoy it, 
And the thing that I love about boxing, and, and really combat sports in general, because I'm also a huge fan of the UFC and, uh, and mixed martial arts. And so the thing that I love about boxing and, and combat sports in general is that anything can happen. And surprises, they're always bound to turn up. And that's the fun thing, you know. I mean, you can you can have all the all the the, the, the matchups and the analysis and the tells of the tape. You can have everything, you know, on the table. But until the fight takes place, you know, uh, you never know exactly what's going to happen. And, you know, sometimes things go exactly as you expect, as they did last night. But but not always. And, and so last night um, was not completely predictable. Some of the outcomes we did not see coming. And that was particularly exciting. And of all the fights featured last night on the pay-per-view, the most riveting and ultimately the most brutal fight of the evening was ironically the least hyped fight of the evening. And that was the fight between Jamie Foxx and the National Anthem. I'm sure Vegas oddmakers had Jamie Foxx as the favorite going into that bout, so anybody who put their money on the National Anthem, you came out with fat pockets because that old tune put a beating on Jamie that I'm sure he'll be feeling for quite a while. But beyond that, beyond the beyond the fights and beyond a, a butchered rendition of the national anthem, the best part of, of, of the fight and ultimately uh, the pay-per-view was uh, was having an opportunity to, to hang out with my family, which I always love doing, especially when there's a, a big pay-per-view, be it boxing or a, a big UFC pay-per-view. You know, it gives us an opportunity to, to get together and hang out and uh, eat some junk food and, and engage in and some uh, some nice bloody combat sports. We enjoy that. So it was it was a fun night. And uh, last week in the uh, in the episode titled "Are You Up," which was episode sixty six, uh, you guys had the opportunity to hear many of the folks that I that I watched the fight with. Uh, the only missing piece, the only one who wasn't with us to watch the fight last night, who was on the podcast last week, uh, was my German nephew, Giannis specifically because he's he's in Germany so it would have been uh, completely unreasonable for him to uh, to come out uh, to watch the fight with us. Now if you haven't had the opportunity to listen to episode 66 yet, I would implore you to please go back and listen to it. Not right this second, finish this episode. I promise you this one's really good and you're going to enjoy it. But when you're done, if you haven't, go back listen to episode 66. Uh cuz uh that one not only not only will you enjoy it, not only will you be entertained, but it turned out to be a surprisingly poignant episode, which was something that I was not expecting when we started it. Frankly, I didn't know what to expect when we started it, because uh, it was just, you know, we just sat down, turned on the mics, and uh, just kind of let things let things roll. And by the time it was over, it was, it was, it was funny, and it was uh, emotional, and uh, frankly, if you have a heart beating in your chest, then you will literally laugh and cry before it's over. So go back and check it out, if you haven't already. And if you have checked it out, tell the people who haven't checked it out that I'm not lying to them. Now, as far as laughs go, this week's episode will not disappoint you. Because my guest this week is the award-winning British author Jasper Bark. Along with his critically acclaimed novels, Jasper has written 12 children's books and hundreds of comics and graphic novels, 
and his work has been translated into five different languages, which is super impressive because I can only read his work in one language. So, uh, so that it's been translated into uh, five different languages is uh, well above my pay, above my pay grade. I was going to say pray grade. I guess that's true too. It is above my pray grade, but also well above my pay grade. And some of his books are even used in schools throughout the UK to help improve literacy. So he's not only entertaining readers with his writing, but uh, he's actually contributing to society in a very positive way. That's pretty awesome. And beyond all of that, and if, if you can believe it, there's more. Beyond all of that, Jasper Bark is a really swell dude. Just a really cool guy. You're going to like If you don't know Jasper Bark, you're in for a treat. He's really cool, and you're going to like him an awful lot. I've never had the pleasure of chatting with Russell Brand, but I suspect that chatting with Jasper Bark is a pretty close facsimile. Honestly, the second Jasper began speaking, the second he opened his mouth, the second the first sentence crossed his lips, I couldn't wipe the smile off of my face. He is, he's so funny and engaging and truly just a very endearing character. I promise you, there is no way you'll finish listening to our conversation without loving him. Now, one of my very favorite things about being the host of the Martin Lestrap Show podcast hour is it affords me the opportunity to have conversations with writers in other countries, which I've had the chance to do a, a couple of times now. And I, I love this primarily because it, uh, it gives me a glimpse into other parts of the world. But more than that, I, it, it gives me the ability to see just how much I have in common with other writers which is really cool because, you know, regardless of where we live in the world, regardless of how different our backgrounds are, regardless of how different our geographical uh, settings are, there's something about being a writer that transcends all of that, that transcends, uh, it transcends country and nationality and uh, religion and faith and, and anything else you want to throw in the pot. Something about being a writer transcends all of that. And so I love, I, and I love, I love learning this. This isn't something that I knew before I started this podcast. It's something that I've learned having done this podcast and, and having the opportunity to, to talk with writers like Jasper Bark. And, and, and it's just so cool and just, I was gonna say interesting, really, it's just gratifying just to, you know, to see, uh, you know, the, 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 the common threads that uh, that string that string writers together, and so the more that I talked to Jasper Bark during the course of our conversation, the more I began to feel like I was talking with a kindred spirit. Or as Jay Moore says on his podcast, I felt like I was meeting an old friend for the first time. Now Jasper and I we cover a, a number of topics, but amongst other things, Jasper and I talked about uh, his book Stuck on You and other prime cuts. Specifically, we spent time talking about the novella that begins the book, and that story begins with a scene of a man who's been struck by lightning while having sex with a woman, 
I'm going to do you a favor, and I'm going to repeat that one more time for you, because you might be thinking to yourself, surely I've heard Martin wrong, but I want to make sure that you know that you did not hear me wrong, so I'm going to repeat that last bit for you. His book begins with a man who's been struck by lightning while having sex with a woman. And just to be clear, it doesn't begin with a man talking about this crazy thing that happened to him. Literally, the first scene of the story is a man who is who is presently engaged in coitus and has been struck by lightning. That's where the story begins. And believe it or not, as the story progresses, you come to find out that that first scene, it's the most normal thing that happens in the entire story. Things only get crazier and more fucked up after that. So we spend some time talking about that as among, amongst other things. Uh, now, if you're feeling properly tantalized, you may want to take a moment to go to Amazon.com and get yourself a copy of Jasper Bark's book, Stuck on You and Other Prime Cuts. And if you were going to do that, I would encourage you to please go through Amazon.com. But more than that, before you go to Amazon.com, since you're going to go there anyway, please go through the official website of this podcast, which you can find at martinlestrapsshow.com. When you get there, click on the shop page. Once you're on the shop page, you're going to see an Amazon banner. Click on that banner. It's going to take you to Amazon. Do all the shopping you were going to do otherwise, including getting yourself a copy of Stuck on You and Other Prime Cuts by Jasper Bark. And make your purchase. And once you make your purchase, because you went through the official website of this podcast, Amazon kicks a few pennies back our way. And they do that uh, as sort of a commission in recognition for the fact that... Uh, you know, essentially, we sent you there. Now, you and I, we both know you were going to go to Amazon anyway to buy Jasper's book. And the fact that you went through my website, you were simply doing me a favor. But Amazon, you know, Amazon doesn't care. They don't care if you're doing me a favor. They just care that you got to their website. And because you, you know, because you went to the, their website through my website, you know, they'll kick a few pennies back our way. And uh, me and everybody else who works on this show, we greatly appreciate it because we get to take those pennies and reinvest them back into the show. And that allows us to make this show as good as we can possibly make it for you, which is what we strive to do week after week after week. Episode 67 being no exception. So, now, where are we? I know where we are. We are at the point where it is time to move on with the show. So, if all of that sounds good to you, then without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with the hilarious, the brilliant, and the very, very cool Jasper Bark. I'm the son of two river gypsies. Uh, they met when my mother fell in the River Thames and my father fished her out. Uh, <laughs> Is that true? Not that that's absolutely... Well, I don't know. You'd have to ask my parents because obviously I wasn't there at the time. 
<laughs> Otherwise, it would have been kind of worrying. But um, but apparently, yes, my father fished my mother out. Weirdly as well, actually, he was about twice her age. He was about 34 and she was about 17. And I have to say, I'm a little older than 34 myself now, but when I hit 34, that did kind of freak me out a bit, looking up <laughs> and thinking, ooh. <clears throat> but I grew up in a, a town in the middle of England called Nottingham, which is probably best known for Robin Hood and Sherwood Forest, where Robin Hood used to hide out, was quite nearby. Being the son of gypsies, though, they were quite peripatetic. They moved around an awful lot. They eventually settled in a little uh, northwestern shipyard town. It's up on the northwest coast of England. It is not so much um, the land that time forgot as the land that forgot it was time. It's at the end of an incredibly long um, cul-de-sac. There's one road in and one road out. And you kind of get the feeling that the only way often you escape this town is in a coffin. Um, and it's a small shipyard town. It kind of the northwest of England is a little bit sort of like Detroit used to be. Um, it was the, it was the industrial heartland mm-hmm. of the country. Um, where I lived, they built ships and they built submarines. They were nationally famous at one point for for um, welding uh, half a submarine on the other half of the submarine upside down. Which um, um, sadly, the, as with most industry here in the West, most of the uh, most of the shipyard is completely shut down. Um, and so, uh, when I grew up, there was this sense that there was going to be jobs for life. Um, and the purpose of going to school was that you would be told um, basically how stupid you were, so you know <laughs> how stupid a job you should get. That was my education. In fact, actually, um, most people left school at sixteen. Um, you could carry on for another two years. Um, and that will be kind of our equivalent of high school graduation, but very few people did. And when I was at school, uh, it was it was sort of the era of Thatcher and Reaganomics, and jobs weren't hadn't completely disappeared at that point. So pretty much everybody was guaranteed a job when they left school. Although the idea of going to the shipyard terrified me. And I remember <laughs> even that from the earliest age, I knew I wanted to be a writer, um, and I've always been something of a performer. So I thought I'd have a bit of that. As well, I remember I went in to sit down for my um, uh, with my what you call them careers advisors. I don't know mm-hmm. if you have that in your country. It's the guy who tells you what sort of job you should do. Yeah. And I came in and I sat down. And he said, "So, son, because they all talk. That's the sort of accent they have where you used to come from. <laughs> it's a little bit like the Monty Pythons. Um, if you tell the youngs to do that, they won't believe you." Um, and I said, "So, son, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up?" And I said, "Well, I want to write books." He went, "Oh, I see, surf accountant." Thinking I was going to be better. I said, "No, no, no. I, I want to be an author." And he I pissed himself laughing at this, but <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know, maybe if you get a job in the yard and <laughs> you're better. And then I tried very carefully, because um, uh, I'm a 16-year-old kid from the sticks, to explain that we're sitting in a library having this uh, this particular interview and we're surrounded by books and those books must have been bought by the library. So somebody must have been paid for the books and somebody must have been paid to write them. And that's the job I want. At which point he just went incandescent with rage that this this little scut had dared dared to explain something like this to him um and he, and he got it blew up listen son if you're gonna it's about a waste man come time you're gonna right <laughs> and that was the end as far as school was concerned with regards to my budding literary career that was it that was the best i absolutely got was a chuckle and then a stream of obscenities from my uh, <laughs> career advisor 
Needless to say, I mean, um, also at that time, um, uh, there was uh, songs from the um, uh, Eric Burden's we, We've Got to Get Out of This Place through um, anything written by Jim Steinman um, or sung by Meatloaf. And any kind of like soft rock kind of hit from about the 70s to the, to the end of the 80s was all about getting out of a small town. Mm. And although I was kind of more into getting out of my head when I was in my mid and early teens and probably listening to a lot more kind of weird psychedelic music, Nonetheless, that particular sentiment completely appealed to me. I was desperate to escape um, from my background. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I remember as well, because um, it was, it was kind of quite poor and it was, it was seriously rough where I grew up. Um, two stories from my childhood. Uh, the first one, um, I remember I was about eight or nine years old. And I'd just been to the library. And this was quite a strange thing to do um, with regards to my peers. And I called around at my friend's house after a bit of the library and I had like a bunch of books under my arm. And, uh, and my, my friend said, see these books here? See these books, mum? And his mum went, ah. He went, he'll take them books home and he'll read them. Everyone, cover to cover, all them words inside, everything. And his mum looked at me and went, ah. As if to say, what on earth? What do, you, what do you want to do that for? And I thought, you, at this point, explaining to my peers um, why I wanted to read books was, was completely a pointless affair. <laughs> but, but here was an adult. An adult had actually asked me a question. Why are you reading a book? And in my kind of weird, haunting little way, I kind of tried to explain to her that books are almost like, like doorways to other worlds. You can go anywhere you want. You open the, the cover of the book. It's like opening a door. You could step onto the moon. You could go back into the past. You could go into this, this fairyland. And when I kind of finished my kind of haunting way, she gave me this look as if I just described kind of having sexual intercourse with small furry creatures. This look of sheer disgust. And, 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 and the whole temperature of the room drops and I'm realising, even at eight years old, I'm realising, okay, I don't know why, but I've said something really over the limit here. And as I left, she turned to my mate, just as I was got the door and went, don't bring him round here again, will you? <laughs> oh, goodness. What, 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 uh, so you came from a small town uh, where, where it sounds like education was... Um, not a premium. Yeah. So, so what kind of student were you, or how, how did you do in school despite the circumstances? I um, uh, I was a little bit too um, uh, intelligent for my own good. I was one of these kids that are too intelligent, too mouthy, hmm. um, and when you have uh, when you're surrounded by adults who may not be particularly academically gifted, that's seen as quite threatening. I was always in trouble, and, and I just <laughs> keep my mouth shut. Um, and, um, I was, uh, I messed about in class cause I was bored. Yeah. Um, I became the class clown, the class smart aleck, but I was also the irritating person who bunked off lessons, who got into trouble, who was permanent, I think, but I still managed to kind of ace most of my exams. I was very good at taking exams, not necessarily being a student. Yeah. So, um, so I, I would start the beginning of the, every year at my senior school, um, in all the, um, uh, top sets cause I'd kind of scored either first or second mark in the entire year. Um, and then I'd end the year due to my behavior in all the bottom sets. And they begrudgingly have to put me up because I couldn't kind of come top in the year and not be back in the top stream. So I would kind of yo-yo up and down, really. And eventually they, they, um, they had to test my IQ. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this, this eventually sort of went up the ranks and someone in the Board of Education had a look and went, this, this kid's probably bright and this is why he's messing about. Um, so let's do an IQ test and see what's going on here. Mm-hmm. However, this fed back down to my pupils as this child has to be punished by taking out of the lessons and sat in a corridor somewhere being forced to do these exams. Um, so I was kind of like yanked out of my classroom and humiliated. You, Bark, get out. 
You're not fit to be these people. You have to sit here and take these exams. So we just know what sort of miscreant you are. Um, and I did all these exams and kind of scored off the the, um, the 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 scale in terms of IQ. I got this really really high IQ that they'd never had in this particular region ever before. And I remember um, my head of year sitting down with me, um, and I was permanently in his office for something. And he was sitting there going, "I just I just can't understand why someone of your intelligence acts the way you do. I I, I just can't understand it." And at that point, I must admit, I snapped. I'd so annoyed by hearing this, I can't stand it. And I just um, I was a gobby little idiot. And I went, of course you can't understand. Because as you just pointed out, very few people in this region have ever made this mark, which means you're probably not as intelligent as me. How can someone of lesser intelligence understand someone of greater intelligence? And the look on his face, we had capital, we had, not capital, we had corporal punishment in my school then. Yeah. <laughs> the look on his face was incredible. And he reached into his desk, yanked up this thing <laughs> and pushed my head off the desk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a big chap and I was small. <laughs> I remember as I was sitting across the desk thinking if I was really truly intelligent, I would have kept my flipping mouth shut at that point. <laughs> you know, I was I was thinking for, for at least part of that story, uh, I was thinking that maybe I had something in common with you in terms of you know, being bored in school and sort of feeling mm-hmm. a little creative and out there but then uh then you got to the part about getting good marks and that's that's where our <laughs> stories split I, I was not a very good student i i, I wasn't I, I wasn't good at uh i didn't i didn't do well on tests and i wasn't very big on doing the homework but um but i was never really i was never rebellious like i never i, I was i was never of the ilk of you know uh you know uh fuck school i've got better things to do i actually always admire the students who did well i just didn't really know how to do it and uh and wow. i don't know i don't See, know um, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I would say um, I'm quite the reverse. Um, yeah, <laughs> always, always in trouble. If anything picked up in the school, and I happen to be even within a mile of it, it would be you boys. I'm just about stand still. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 I, yeah, you and I, I think we're yeah we're polar opposites. Not I, as far as my my, you know, my circumstances. I don't know if it was a. Uh, I don't know what it was, but nobody like I felt like uh, uh, I was uh, I wasn't smart enough to catch anybody's attention but i also wasn't uh uh i, I wasn't doing poorly enough to catch anybody's attention so i was kind of f- floating in the middle uh, and i think especially in high school like there's certain classes that i i know like like sitting here today as a as a as a as a grown man like i know there's certain classes that i shouldn't have passed and i probably shouldn't have graduated when i did but i think because i showed up on time and i was polite and i raised my hand and you know the teachers liked me when it came when it came time if i was you know, if I probably shouldn't have passed, I think they gave me a passing grade, and I and I just kind of moved along. And it wasn't until I, when I got out of high school, um, I, I think uh, you know, in retrospect, I think maybe there I had I, I like to believe anyway that I had a, a natural brightness, but uh, it didn't it didn't really get plugged into school. And I, I I think I hope again, this is maybe me revising history to make myself feel better. I think it was because I was way more interested in creativity and drawing pictures and comic mm. books and. And things that uh, things that didn't really seem to to happen in the classroom, uh, and so the things that I was interested in, we didn't really deal with. The things that I couldn't get engaged with was eight hours a day, five days a week. <laughs> I, I am totally with you. I was exactly the same, completely into comic books and reading. And, and I I was one of those kids that did read, that read voraciously. And, and I, but I could read all the stuff we were supposed to read for the next two years in a couple of months. I mean, anyone can really if they if they read a lot. Yeah. Um. And so, but like you, I was completely disengaged. It just so happened I had a talent for passing exams. That was all. I mean, that's. <laughs> and it's just unfortunate. I don't think the academic world it, it measures one very tiny little part of intelligence. Mm-hmm. I, I've got two kids, two um, two 
beautiful, amazing daughters I dote upon. The eldest one has my kind of academic mindset. She she sails through. She doesn't really have to try. She always does extremely well. She actually, unlike me, applies herself, so she does really, really well. <laughs> and my youngest has got a very similar temperament to me, but she hasn't got. But she's just completely creative, mm-hmm. and she's got all this practical creativity. She's great at things like sewing and art, and she loves to cook, and she's totally into fashion, and she's an amazing, got an amazing eye for design. Um, but none of that is is rewarded in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that is a different type of intelligence. You know, it's like there is an emotional intelligence that we're aware of now. There's, a, there's, a, there's an intellectual intelligence, an ability to kind of think along certain logical lines. But then a creative intelligence is very difficult to measure academically. And that's why kids like us become disengaged from school, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the, the days, like, you know, the, the best days in school where when uh... – Say the the you know I I remember like in in grade school maybe after lunch when the teachers wanted you to settle down a little bit so they would they would read for about an hour and I could sit there and just draw pictures while the teachers read and and uh, that was always great fun to me or uh, I remember taking a, a photography class and and even though I, I you know I never became a photographer just this uh, I, I at the time I couldn't really even really articulate it but there was something mm-hmm. about this this creative outlet that was just way more engaging to me. And, and, and I think because and nobody ever told me this, but I think I just intuited it that uh, if I enjoyed it, then it probably wasn't worth my time. Or if I was having fun doing it, then I should probably put that aside and do something. If I'm not enjoying it, then that's going to be good for me. And if I like yeah. it, but yeah. And, and, you know, and that's, and growing up, that's, yeah, it wasn't until, I don't even, I don't even know when I realized that, uh, uh, the opposite was true, but definitely growing up, that was kind of the message I got. And again, I don't, I don't think anybody told me that, but you know, the the the, the culture of a school and everything—that's kind of the message that I was getting. Which is unfortunate because I think probably because um, the teachers who are teaching us and our parents who have to go out to work to earn money to feed us invariably are doing things they don't like. Yeah. Um, and so it's a case of like, stop enjoying yourself. How dare you? You come home, you have possibly an hour a day you can know yourself. The rest of the time, it's got to be absolute drudgery. Mm-hmm. So that's what life is. I hate being here. I don't want to sit in front of this classroom. How dare you enjoy what I'm teaching you? Yeah, so when, when uh, okay, so so you you were reading from a young age. Like I, I liked, I enjoyed comic books at a young age, but I didn't really, I didn't really st- I didn't really come to enjoy and appreciate books until I was about 18 years old. But when I was, and when I read comic books, I never thought of them as, as reading, even though in retrospect, I realized I was reading, mm. but in my mind, I liked That's the, the pictures. That's the great thing about them. Yeah. That's why they're so cool. Yeah. It, it's it, not really reading. <laughs> yeah. And I was even fooling myself and I think it was the same thing where, you know, if I could maybe sneak a comic book into school, you know, I didn't think of it as reading, but you know, it had to have no pictures and just, you know, white pages and black ink mm-hmm. and that was this that was the serious stuff and and again i mean now you know i'm, I'm uh, 37 now and I, I i read comic books all the time now but when i read them i completely feel like i'm reading it's when i was a kid i felt like i was i don't know I, maybe just getting away with something until somebody told me to you do something yeah <laughs> that's kind of what it felt like so so in your case how so you so you were you were reading at a young age and you kind of knew you, mm-hmm. you wanted to be a writer at a young age uh, do you know roughly about how old, how old you were when when you knew that writing was something you wanted to do? Um, we used to have 
we have um, a public service broadcaster who's one of the largest broadcasters um, in, in Britain, the BBC, the, the people who make Doctor Who mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the stuff that you'll see on things like um, PBS and stuff yeah. and all of that uh, ridiculous um, uh, period costumes, anything Charles <laughs> Dickensy with those very stupid accents talking like this. That all comes from the BBC and they used to have a kids' programme and this is the only type of programme you, you'll get from public service broadcasting but it used to be called Why Don't You? And that was short for... The full title of the program was, why don't you turn off your TV set and go and do something less boring instead? Hmm. Can you imagine, and now it's a multi-channel and sponsorship, trying to uh, um, basically pitch that to a sponsor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what we do, we're going to put a program that encourages kids not to watch television. In fact, even to switch this program off. And it will be full of um, all sorts of extremely worthy short films about kids who are up out going fishing or stamp collecting or doing other hobbies. And then I was um, watching this. I'm five years old. It's a very boring, extremely worthy program. And most of the time, it's, it's, there's only, at that point, um, we only had three channels on the television um, in my country. Uh, it is a bit of a backward European country. So we were always way behind you over the pond. Um, <laughs> and you only had like about an hour's worth of kids programs every single day. You might have like half an hour in the morning and half an hour in the evening just after you got back from school. Um, and I was watching this. I was about five, yeah, was just five years old. Um, so I would be back from um, our, what we call infants, your elementary school. Um, and this little feature came on, Why Don't You, about these kids who are making their own comic books. And basically, they used to fold bits of paper in half. They get a little stapler from the stationery thing and staple them. And then they get their felt tip pens and they draw their own comics. And it was like... This light bulb went off my head. <laughs> oh, oh, my God! I've got paper. I've got felt tips. My mum's got a stapler. I could make comics. I could make comics. Never in my life, <laughs> even to this day, e- even all the sexual encounters I've had, the drugs I've taken, um, the massive gigs that I've played, nothing in the world has ever excited me more than that one single moment, that bing! Oh, my God! I remember I didn't even bother to watch the end of the feature. I was just totally stunned. I went and got some paper and started drawing my own comic books. Now, I'm, I'm not an artist. I have absolutely no artistic talent whatsoever at all. I know because I work with an inordinate number of artists from all over the world who are amazingly talented. I have no talent at it. But, <laughs> but that was when I first learned to start to tell stories, to start thinking. Uh, um, and initially speaking, of course, breaking down stories into panels and... Mm-hmm having an interplay between text and panels that I later learned uh, as a writer of comic books. But that was my first. And then from there, it was only a short jump. About a year later, my, my dad um, was uh, uh, the um, shop steward for his local union. He was a union guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would bring home these ledgers from the union things um, and give them to me. And the, the one page was blank and one page was lined. And I would fill those with stories. Like all people, initially, uh, all people who start to write, that my earliest attempts um, at uh, writing were completely plagiaristic. I just slightly <laughs> changed the story I'd read. But that was it. So it was about five, six years old, um, I started to do it. And then it would have been about eight. I remember actually, one Christmas, um, I was about six years old. I was so into writing my stuff, my parents actually confiscated all of my pens and my paper. So I, so I would stop writing and come and open my flipping presents which they left under the tree (laughs) (laughs) which greatly upset me you can imagine because what i really wanted was like more paper and pens and things to write and maybe some books and some comics (laughs) another pair of socks gee thanks um so so that would have been and it was it took me a little while to work out that um that this obviously meant i was going to be a writer but from that from the earliest age i was always fascinated with language reading it 
writing and with the telling and the creation of stories. Yeah, something that you were talking about just now when, uh, you know, being six and uh, realizing you can make your own comics and, uh, and, and, you know, you were talking about seeing stories visually and creating panels. And mm-hmm. when you said that, that really uh, rang true with me and how I think about stories. And when I, when I, uh, when I sit down to write a story, as much as I love reading and, and I really love reading mm-hmm. and I, and you know, now for the last, I would say 18, 19, 20 years that, that I've been reading, you know, really reading and, and enjoying novels. But when I sit down to write, more than the the books that I read, I think it's, you know, movies and television shows and comic books that affect my storytelling. Mm-hmm. And specifically, you know, I, I see when I when I put a story together in my head before it goes to the page, I I very clearly see pictures, whether it whether I see it in a in a complete scene like a movie, maybe I kind of see it like a like a comic book panel. But then, you know, then I try to find the words to to recreate, you know, what I'm seeing. And for me that seems like the the, the most normal thing in, in the world. But I think there's a lot of writers who maybe don't necessarily tell stories that way, but because you explained it that way, I wonder, is that, is that how you tell stories now? Or is that, was that just as a kid specifically thinking about comic books? It's still how I tell stories. Um, when I think about, uh, a story as well, um, it's almost like, um, the story itself is like a wireframe world that I've created. Mm-hmm. And, and like at the very beginning, um, it, it, I almost kind of draw it like a three-dimensional object. And it's like you can zoom right in, and when you're right inside it, you're then narrating the story. You've got to tell the reader exactly what's happening all around you. But mm-hmm. you can pull out of that, and you can fly right away from it, and you can look at it almost as a four-dimensional thing. Yeah. I know it's start at this point, and the character's going to go there, going to there, and, and it's got colors because this emotion's going to be this way, this is going to feel that way. It's got explosions, it's got a shape. And, and I visually, as I'm constructing it, I see it in my mind. And if it suddenly veers away at a completely different angle, I watch it change shape in my head. So I've always had a very visual engagement going right into the story, coming right out of the story. Um, I think people who have um, imagination, um, William Blake called it the queen of all the senses. And he didn't think imagination was something mental. He thought of it as a sense, mm-hmm. um, like sight, like touch, like smell. And, and I, I think it is. And people who have got very active imaginations, um, they live in a virtual reality world. And, and when you go into a story, you are watching it play out across your mind. You're watching the characters. When you go to, to describe a character, you, you kind of almost pull them up. You kind of zoom in in your mind and you go, what does he look like? And you notice the mole on the side of their cheek that you hadn't seen before. You notice the double chin hanging down. You notice it suddenly tucked under their shirt. There's a St. Christopher medal. You think, oh, that's interesting. Maybe he's a good Catholic boy. And all those little things, because you are, you are focusing in and then maybe you're pulling out. So you're looking at the space that you're in, the room that you're in. Maybe you pull it even further and you look at the brownstone building that that room's in. Maybe you pull it even further and you look at the road and the whole block that that building's on. But um, yeah, I I engage very visually um, and I'm immersed in it. But And it's not just visual. I will think about the way things smell. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly if it's, a, if it's a smell that I know smells another very, very evocative scent. So if I'm standing in that room, I might notice it's a little bit damp. In fact, actually, it's worse than damp. Um, either someone's died in here or someone's been urinating in the corner for weeks because, oh, there's that, ugh, there's that smell. And <clears throat> it's getting in the back of my throat so I can almost taste it. And I'm seeing, tasting, smelling. And I think, how much of this is pertinent to the reader? And I'll, I'll put all this down. So they're there. They're right there in the room with me. And that's, I, I want to kind of um, affect that virtual reality myself. And so, yes, um, the words are there um, as a, well, I'm using words specifically as a means to stand in for all these other senses, to spurs for their imagination, to create as much of that world as possible. And, and it is supposed to be visual, I think, when I, when I conceive of a story. And it's supposed to, you're supposed to have 
hear it, smell it, taste it, everything, immersed in it. That's why I, I love the way you explain that. Because everything you said makes perfect sense to me. And uh, mm. I, I, I feel like, uh, I don't know, I, I feel like one of those, uh, I feel like somebody who who uh, maybe spends an awful lot of time on a, on a deserted island because, you know, <laughs> I think as writers, especially as, as writers, as people who get lost in our imaginations, uh, you know, there's a lot of us around, but we don't often bump mm. into each other. And so I kind of feel like I've, I've just uh, bumped into somebody who speaks a language that I, that I understand, and it's, it's, it's very I, gratifying. I totally understand. But that's why um, conventions and doing panels and literary events, I do, I do a lot of those, and you meet up with other writers, and it's amazing. All those little quirky things you do, all those little habits you have, you think <laughs> are completely unique to you. It's astonishing how many other writers do those things as well. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think also going back to how, you know what you were talking about in terms of seeing things in in dimensions and you know zooming in and zooming out and really you know immersing yourself in it, I, I find that if I if I pick up somebody's book or a short story and uh, and if the story isn't if if it's not coming off the page if it's not coming to life, uh, sometimes I feel like maybe that's what's missing. Like I, I feel like maybe mm. there's a and it's not even it's not it's not even you know whoever this hypothetical writer is, it's not even it's not that they didn't try to do a good job, but I kind of feel like. Maybe they were they were focused on I don't know maybe like the superficial surface level uh, layer of of writing. Sometimes maybe they're more focused on on the words and thinking if I can make the words poetic enough, then the words will come to life. When when really I, I think it's you know the way you explained it is if you can really plug in to just to the all the sense of the sights, the smells, the touch. If you can really plug into it and then just just find the words that best explain those things. Those words become poetic just by virtue of them describing this 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 visceral you know image that you created, as opposed to you know trying to create some superficial poetry that's not really mm. connected to anything. The other problem as well, um, and I think the other mistake a lot of um, writers make, um, not good writers, is in actually giving too much detail. They're mm-hmm. so desperate to paint the world for you. They're, if you say, for instance describe a character he's very tall he's extremely thick set and he's a little bit um large around the middle he's got a, a, a goatee beard and he's got a batman t-shirt on that's all you need mm-hmm. everyone's got it now then don't go on to describe the number of wrinkles around his eyes and don't go on to describe his pants and don't go on to describe the fact that he's wearing actually brogues but they're scuffed then because every time you give me a description i have to mentally redraw him in my mind over and over and over again and there's only so many times you do that kind of reboot in your mind your description of that character mm-hmm. Before you just completely um, uh, butt out, and particularly also you're describing a room. You walk into a room, and you say it was done out with old antique furniture. That's all you need to know. Mm-hmm. Don't describe the tall boy in the corner. Don't describe the the table with the table lamp on it, because every time you do that, I've got to redraw that picture in my mind. It's too much detail, mm-hmm. um, and so always pick out the pertinent details. Three details about any description is probably the best. <laughs> uh, you just. Uh, I- <laughs> You just you just crawled into my brain and stole my next thought. I, I was literally going to tell you that I uh, every now and then I'll do uh, wow. creative writing workshops, and uh, 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 one that I like to do is when I talk I talk about uh, character development and creating characters, and uh, and that's that's that li- that's literally one of the ideas I, I'll tell these uh, writers is that mm-hmm. you know if you take a person, in fact I'll even tell them you know, take somebody that you know, maybe it's your mom, your dad, your priest, somebody who you know intimately, you know what they look like, how they smell, how the, how they sound. Now imagine this person, and you, there's you know there's virtually a million details that make this that makes this person who they are. But if you could only pick three, what three details would they be to put on the page? 
there's a million yeah. of them, but you can only pick three. So what are the three things that most make this person who they are? And as you said, that's going to be enough. Because the other thing yeah. I think is, and you know, and and I and I read, uh, I was able to read a little bit of uh, of stuck on you before we before we chatted. So I know that you practice what you preach. Uh, as I was reading it, I felt you know I, I was very uh, I felt very uh, uh, a nice kinship with the writing because I I I, I try okay. to do the same thing where it's. Uh, you know, it's it's. I, I try to toe the line of you know, just kind of bare bones, no no more words than I need. But st- mm. I still want it to feel you know full uh, as full as possible, so the reader's getting a, a a full experience. And you know, and and when I when I'm when I'm writing and revising, I'm you know I, like I'm not going through with a hatchet or anything. But you know, if if I find even one word that's that doesn't feel like it's serving a purpose, I take it out to make it as as lean as I can. So that whatever is left over, it's going to be as rich as it can be without any wasted motion. I, I completely agree. Um, I think the simplest um, and the shortest distance um, between any two points within terms of writing is the most eloquent. Mm-hmm. Um, use the simplest vocabulary you often can. It's all right now and again to, to, to use uh, very long, very, very complex words. Mm-hmm. But, um, but uh, uh, you can say eloquent or you could say talks very well. And the more people will understand um, talks very well. Hey, it's got a mouth on him. Doesn't understand a specifically eloquent and erudite individual who's read a lot of books. <laughs> talks well, and and that that communicates more to more people. Even if you are extremely erudite, you understand what that means. Um, so you're not going to think, oh, well, I don't get that. But somebody who necessarily may not have had the education advances uh, uh, um, advantages that that uh, some uh, are the same will understand talks well mm-hmm. much more uh, than they would understand eloquent, for instance. And the um, so yeah, always the simplest um, vocabulary. Um, I think is the easiest way um, to get there. And there was one other point uh, which has just slipped my mind with regards to. Uh, oh, never mind. Ask me another question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, yeah, I was going to ask you about uh, you, you had a you spent a part of a, your writing career as a as a journalist before you got into novel writing. Is that correct? That's right, yes. It's, again, very common for a lot of writers. But I was a film and music journalist. Uh, to be honest, um, it was just a bit of a sky as far as I was concerned. Um, I'd spent my um, late teens and early 20s starting off in, in um, uh, theatre, uh, at small-scale repertory theatre. And then I moved into stand-up, which was, was a little more remunerative. But it was still a kind of hand-to-mouth existence. You know, I'd just about make enough each week to pay the rent and maybe pay myself. And I thought I'd probably only get a slightly better job. And uh, film and music journalists seemed kind of quite um, uh, a good idea because I would just basically get paid to go out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would go and see films and, and go and see music. It's not as well paid as, as other areas of journalism, I have to confess. But it was, um, <laughs> and, and again, I had no um, training in this um, and, and no real contacts. I just phoned people up who were, I lived in London at the time, which is the centre of, um, of the universe as regards to, to the UK. Um, and everything happened there at that point um, in my life. And so I would just phone up editors and say, hey, you're an editor. Um, I want to write something. And they'd usually say, go away. Or I'd say, look, I'll buy you a drink. Where do you drink? Or I'd just turn up at the place with a drink. Hello, it's me. I'm the guy who just keeps phoning you. You've got to give me a job. <laughs> and eventually, eventually I wore a few people down and then people started giving me work. And then I kind of got into, uh, got offered a job in editorial. And so um, I worked on a, a big music paper. It would kind of... Similar to the Rolling Stone or kind of Crawdaddy, it was the, it was the, um, the, the British version of that. Um, and I did that for about 10 years or so. That's cool. And now I was, uh, so, so you did journalism, you eventually, uh, you eventually got, got married. And uh, 
there, there, there came a point where you, uh, you, you made a decision that you wanted to pursue writing full time. And mm-hmm. so you had to present this idea to, to your wife. And who uh, was pregnant with, with my second <laughs> child. Um, yes. Uh, well, at that point, by that point, um, I'd sold a novel and I was, I, I'd sold quite a few comic books, um, but I had spent a lot of time speaking to some, I mean, I, my job was to go and meet highly creative people and sit down and talk to them just like we're doing. Um, and because I was creating myself, I could usually engage with them just like you can as one creative individual to another. Journalists aren't generally quite creative individuals. Um, so we'd have amazing conversations. Um, and I, I, uh, all these film directors and actors and um, musicians, I'd have these amazing conversations with. And I would keep thinking, I'm on the wrong side of this microphone. <laughs> Why? Why am I interviewing you and writing about you? I should be writing about <laughs> everything that's going to be. <clears throat> there's no, we're talking as equals here. I, I'm not just asking you. So, what's it like working with um, George Lucas and then working with William Friedkin on a film? And they go, "Well, George Lucas is one director. William Friedkin." I would be able to talk to them. Hmm. Um, and, so, and yeah, um, but at this point, I was making quite a good wage. Um, you can imagine I was uh, doing bits of because I was a stand-up. I'd got, also got into doing um, cable TV presenting. And, and we were quite flush. Um, and we're living in London, um, and my wife's about to give birth. And so I'm going, okay, I'm going to stop doing all this. I'm just going to concentrate on the writing. And I even said, and we're going to move to the country. And my wife's taking a deep breath. And I go, and that's it. And, and you're going to have to support us for a little bit. So, but I'll pay for the move because I just got the, the, um, the advance on my first novel. So I thought, that's it, hooray. And um, so we, we did move out of London. We moved to a lovely little, um, a tiny little medieval town. Right in the heart, it's uh, right in the heart of, um, I don't know if you ever heard of the English writer Thomas Hardy or, or uh, Jane Austen. Sure, yeah. Uh, we live, and it hasn't really changed since they were writing novels. Basically, we've kind of moved back in time by about 200 years. <clears throat> they have cars and things coming through, but all the buildings are exactly the same. Um, and the streets are exactly the same, pretty much impassable by most motor cars. Um, <clears throat> And um, and I thought, right, I'll, I'll move to this small town. I'll think my beautiful thoughts. And I overlooked the fact that without two very good wages coming in, uh, we couldn't pay a cleaner. We couldn't pay for childcare. All these things we couldn't pay for, particularly also as we moved to a different place and my wife was still working in London. So I, I went from having this very glamorous lifestyle, which was London parties, hanging out with celebrities, going to um, uh, celebrity uh, screenings, all the rest of it, to moving to a tiny little uh, rural town and school runs and packed lunches and being a house husband. <clears throat> in fact, I was... Um, my, my my eldest daughter was about four at that point, and my youngest daughter was still in a in a little push chair. And I was walking up the road of this tiny little rural town. This old lady was standing, looking at me with this as though some alien had landed. Um, and as I walked past her, she leaned over. She went, "Are you one of these here house husbands?" Then <laughs> I said, "No, no, no. I, I was about to say I'm, I'm a writer, don't you know? Actually, I'm a published author, and I'm blah." blah. And I thought, "Oh heavens!" I, I, I just said, "Yeah, I guess I am." <laughs> <clears throat> Most of my colleagues thought I was an idiot. What the hell are you doing with your life? They were saying. But um, it, it turned out in the long run to have been a really good decision because, um, A, I was more sick of the city than I realized. It, um, London is a huge place, the world's third largest city, and it can kind of get you down after a while. Mm-hmm. But how well you're doing in London, there's always somebody who's, who's richer, uh, more successful, faster, taller, uh, smells better than you are, you do. Um, and, and so... Uh, I moved out to a little, little small rural town and um, was walking around surrounded by beautiful countryside thinking, what's this small, strange, wizened little thing inside me that feels like it's breathing again? <gasps> oh, my God, it's my soul. <laughs> <laughs> ah, ah, 
<clears throat> and um, so, yeah, I kind of got out of that. And also, um, I had been spent too long being semi-creative and yeah. not creative. Yeah, I was going to say, when you plug, when you uh, unplug, I mean to say, when you unplug from, uh, it's maybe in this case, you know, just a, a large city and, and parties and, and just a really just sort of loud, busy lifestyle and move and just, even if you don't move, sometimes it's just, just mm. taking a trip to someplace quiet. You can just, you can feel the, the creativity uh, is more, it's more at your fingertips. You're, you're more, uh, well, I guess just, just pragmatically, you're more, you're more bound to be creative because there's, there's less around to stimulate you. Uh, to stimulate you away from from uh, from from writing or being creative, but if you if but now that you're not, you know living there, living in a, in a small town or living in a small uh, uh, country area, um, I have to imagine like like really in in, in a big way was uh, feeding your your uh, your your creativity hugely. Initially speaking, because um, I wasn't actually getting much time to write, I was a little bit like um, J.K. Rowling talks about writing the first Harry Potter you know, with, a, with a small, tiny child, um, taking any second she possibly could get, sh- 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 rocking the credit with one hand and typing with the other, mm-hmm. um, or writing in notebooks in, in coffee shops. And that, actually, that was um, the, the kind of first two years, A, because I had no income, so I had to kind of earn my way out of domestic drudgery, and, and, and B, because I had no time, because I was looking after incredibly small children. So that also makes you incredibly focused in the in the the hour when they're asleep in the afternoon you get so much work done and then when they finally go to bed in, in the two hours of consciousness you have left before you can cave in and just completely collapse you get so much work done and actually my first um two novels were written like that in mm. in small short doses and i was able to still to churn out like 1000 to 2000 words a day which desperately oh, wow. now i've got so much time to waste i, I mess about so much <laughs> um, and it, it's criminal <laughs> uh how long did it take you to, to write your first novel um um my first uh three novels were all written in three months each oh, um, wow. in fact i had two months for my first novel but i was writing that with another writer mm-hmm. uh, so we were writing um uh, alternate chapters simultaneously um so, because they were they were kind of pulpy commissions uh, i sort of grew up in public, usually people write about three novels, and um, or they used to write about three novels, leave them in their bottom drawer, and mm-hmm. not embarrass themselves. Nowadays, um, they self-publish them, and they probably shouldn't. But <laughs> I, I also um, kind of grew up in public, and my early mistakes when I was still learning how to be a writer were all out there because somebody would pay me uh, uh, four or five thousand pounds. That's about uh, six to eight thousand dollars okay to turn out a novel and i'd have a short space of time to do it in and usually a really tight deadline and you just kind of bang it out um i don't have to do that now um and in fact actually i don't tend to chase those commissions anymore mm-hmm. um which is a blessed relief but uh, it does mean that i write and rewrite far more than i should and writers have come around uh, editors have come around to my house with a baseball bat saying, <laughs> So uh, a few months ago in uh, September of uh, 2014, you published Stuck on You and Other Prime Cuts with uh, Crystal Lake Publishing. Now, uh, uh, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, I was able to, to read uh, uh, probably about the first uh, five or ten pages of it and really enjoy it. I actually look forward to getting back into it. Um, now, that particular book, I was one thing I wasn't sure about, both as I was reading it, kind of checking out the table of contents, uh, is, it, is, it, uh, is it a collection of stories? Is it, uh, is it a novel? I wasn't entirely certain. It's uh, a collection of two novellas. Okay. It starts and ends with a novella, um, and the rest of them are short stories. Uh, and they're all in a, in a relatively um, similar vein, um, in that they are um, quite visceral, 
uh, very direct, um, and uh, they are actually aspiring to do a little bit more than just frighten you, mm-hmm. but they are initially speaking to frighten, um, alarm, annoy, enrage, and provoke you. And also, uh, because I've spent many years uh, as a comedy scriptwriter and as a stand-up, there is a really dark, uh, jet black humour running throughout all of them. Some of the stories actually are, are e- extremely funny, and there's one story in the novel called The Castigation Crunch, um, which I've done as a, as a piece of stand-up, actually, in front of an audience telling them a story. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of laughs in it. Uh, but the rest are kind of, the humour is, is of a very jet black... Um, nature so it's kind of tongue-in-cheek stuck on you is like a giant great shaggy dog story it's one of those things where just when you really cannot think it can get any any worse <laughs> i would take it to a time and then when you think no 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 there's no there's no way it's going to get worse than oh my god he's gotten worse no 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 oh no it's gotten worse no no it's gotten worse uh, and in fact actually we um we filmed some people reading it and the expressions on their faces are are, are absolutely priceless uh, Oh, Have they not read it before they agreed to read it? Uh, yes, um, and, and we kind of filmed them <laughs> watching it. Um, so hopefully we're hoping to use that as a bit of a trailer. <laughs> but like when you get those, those movie reactions, we're just going, ah! we're going ah, what? <laughs> now, uh, I know why they reacted that way, because like I said, I started reading it. Uh, how, much do you, uh, uh, how much of that uh, are you uh, willing to, to, to tell the, the listeners about? How many, how many how many how many details are you willing to share about that with the, with the listeners without spoiling anything? Of course, um, it, it's about a, a guy called Ricardo who is um, uh, most people who read it think he's a bit of a douche. He he's a little bit macho. He has been sleeping around on his. Uh, it's never specified that it's his girlfriend or his wife. It's certainly his long term partner. Mm-hmm. She's called him out. He's completely um, uh, confessed everything, and she's taken him back. Um, and it starts. Um, at, at the end of a, of a very unfortunate uh, attempt, he goes into um, uh, Mexico. Um, he, she wants to run a little craft store, so he's gone in um, over the border um, from Arizona, where he lives, into Nogales to pick up a bunch of um, artifacts to sell at trade fairs. And he's stuffed them in his boot and hidden them out the way. And he meets a, a girl called um, Consuela, and she is, he thinks, a drugs mule. Um, she knows he wants. She wants to get across the border, and she flirts outrageously with him. And she pretty much she's she's huge, strongly um, intimating that it's a ride for a ride. Um, and he goes along for this, um, and she drives him way out into the woods um, around Arizona, land of the Sky um, Islands. Forgotten the name of the giant great wood conurbation. You get completely lost in there to meet this um, connection of hers. Um, they get it on in the forest and they're struck by lightning. And the story starts as he wakes up. Um, she's had um, what they called, um, uh, oh, uh, I've completely forgotten. Basically, um, it's a very rare um, a medical condition where the um, muscles of the vagina contract um, so that the male penis, no matter how flaccid, cannot escape. Um, she struck like the lightning goes through him, hits her, um, chars both of their bodies, kills her, and her muscles contract, and he cannot get his cock out of her. He's stuck in the middle of the woods with his penis trapped inside a, um, a rotting corpse. And he has to get back. 
<laughs> Basically, he needs medical attention and he has to get back to his car, which is only um, a matter of like uh, 15 minutes walk on foot. But when you have your cock stuck in a rotting corpse and you can't get it out, it's, it's an epic journey. And it's his attempt to stay alive. And, and he's attacked by wild beasts. And things just, just go, they, they get worse than you could possibly imagine. And it starts, he wakes up, um, sees uh, he's got his um, uh, penis in a corpse. Uh, he throws up over the corpse, passes out from the pain, wakes up again and realizes he can't escape. And how does he get back to his um, to his Jeep and, and get away? And, and that's basically the story. That's great. And that's only one story and stuck on you and other prime cuts. And of course, the title stuck on you takes on a very charming uh, meaning after you start reading the reading the story. Now, when you put this collection together, I'm always curious about this. Was it a collection that you mindfully were writing to to put together in one in one in one book or were these stories that you'd been working on over the years and then you there was maybe a, a common enough theme to, to put them together um it was stories i've been working on over the years um I, I primarily write novels and comic books but increasingly i've been asked to contribute to more and more anthologies um some of which have won awards and one or two of my short stories have won awards as well and uh, my previous collection of short stories dead air um uh, won a couple of awards um and I was approached by Crystal Lake um, and they said, do you have um, anything for us? And initially I said, probably not. And then um, uh, I wrote that story. It was originally going to be a short story. I was asked to write for a, a, an erotic horror collection because this is quite an, it's quite an erotic story. It's mm-hmm. quite hot in places uh, and quite graphic. Um, and it was one of those stories that's happened to me an awful lot recently. I start sit down to write a short story and it grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. I sit down to write a, a short novelette and it becomes a short novel. And this one grew and grew and grew and it wasn't um, going to go in the anthology. It was way too long. Mm-hmm. At that point, um, I was chatting to Joe, the, the publisher of Crystal Lake, and said, I might have something for you. And he said, well, this is great, but why don't you give us a short story collection? And I ummed and ahed again and thought, no. And then I thought, actually, I've got hundreds of short stories. They've all been published. I've never collected them. So um, this collection of short stories, Stuck on You, um, is both um, erotic, it's, it's quite extreme in places, and it's, it's quite funny as well. There's a dark sense of humour. So I specifically, all the, the nine stories in it, in Stuck on You, the prime cuts, are chosen because they're either, uh, they've got a dark sense of humour and or they've got quite a, um, a, a dark, visceral uh, story behind them and or they're kind of quite funny. Um, so it's, it's in that kind of vein. They're all of a similar type. Um, and also, they're probably stories you haven't quite heard before. You won't go, oh, yeah, that's just uh, this story. Or, <laughs> I, most of the comments that goes in, all of the reviews who've read it, have gone, wow, okay, now I've never quite read anything like this before. Yeah. Um, it's just the hugest compliment. Because I, yeah. I don't set out to sit down and tell you the same old story. There's nothing wrong with writers who go, you know what, I love zombies. You know what, I love vampires. Mm-hmm. I just want to tell the best single best vampire or the best single zombie apocalypse story. And they do it brilliantly. And, and some amazing writers have done some wonderful things with those, uh, particularly zombie apocalypse from Robert Kirkman to Jonathan Mabry, uh, Brian Keane, an amazing number of great authors. But personally, I, I tend to kind of favor those writers who, who create their own, it, it, something new you haven't mm. seen before. H.P. Lovecraft came completely out of the blue. No one had seen anything quite like the Cthulhu mythos. Clive Barker, again, you just think, where the hell did those ideas come from? <laughs> and... I don't say for a second I'm in the league of those people, right. but that's just kind of what I aspire to. You won't have read something like this before. You will go, whew, where the hell did that come from? Yeah, yeah. Nobody, nobody has yet said to you, oh, got another story where a guy got his cock stuck in a corpse? Stuck in a corpse? Gee, no, no, no. 
I'm desperately hoping that all of these will completely spark off new subgenres. That'd be great. <laughs> like if like, 30 years from now, there'll be there'll be the, the the cock stuck in the corpse genre, and you know, and your your name will be in the history books. Here's hoping. <laughs> if no. not that, then there are lots of other kind of like uh, there is the, probably it ends with um, with a weird western that is probably the weirdest western you're likely ever to have read. Um, that there is uh, different types of completely new monsters uh, and strange beings you won't have encountered before. There's uh, political sat- satire of a nature you might not have um, encountered, and and things which are quite dark and quite gruesome. Now, uh, as far as uh, working with the uh, uh, Crystal Lake Publishing, uh, you're obviously very very creative. So I wonder. Uh, how involved were you with the overall uh, production of the book in terms of the, the, the cover and the, the design and things of that nature? Did you have any input or did you pass the stories along to them and then they took care of everything? Interestingly, um, because I'm used to working with mainstream presses and um, Crystal Lake is a very highly thought of independent press, mm-hmm. um, I, I was given um, a lot more input. Usually, you hand in your manuscript, it just says, right, that's it, shove off. And then six months later, you get a, a consignment of books to the post and you go, oh. Um, in this instance, I was sent galleys, I was sent proofs, I was um, sent things for typesetting, just to kind of clear. Mostly as a courtesy. Um, the front cover came from an artist called Rob Moran, who is a brilliantly, and he also did all the interior illustrations. Um, I specifically asked for Rob. He's an, a multiple award winning illustrator, and he and I work on a lot of graphic novels together. Um, and so I asked, look, this guy's amazing, and you know, maybe he'll do it for cheap because it's me. Um, and he owes me a few favors. I know where the bodies are buried. And, and in Rob's case, <laughs> that's not too far from the truth. <clears throat> and he's a, he's, a, he's a bit of a Scottish hermit. He lives up um, in the Orkney Islands, right out on an island in the middle of nowhere. A little bit like Summer Isle from The Wicker Man, except they seriously do burn police officers because um, <laughs> this is the wilds of Scotland. Um, and and he's, a, he's quite a, a, a grumpy malcontent, but he's also uh, one of the, the, the most warmest human beings I've known. In, in spite of his his, uh, his violent and malcontented nature, and um, he, he he's a hermit as well. He doesn't really see or speak to, to hardly anyone. Um, but I got in touch with him, uh, and he sort of said, "So, what do you want for this book cover?" And I and I threw about some ideas, and he laughed derisively at me, uh, sneered, and said, "You can shove that up your backside." Um, except, <laughs> except he used a slightly more choice words and and slightly more threats of violence. So thank goodness he lives at the opposite end of the country to me. Um, and he drew that that amazing cover, which which is just breathtakingly good. And he drew all the interior illustrations. Um, so, but that was that, that kind of um, the extent of my input. Um, <laughs> I was I was uh, as you were talking about that. I was actually trying to uh, to dig up the the title of the the comic book that you that you just uh, recently published. Because um, before we sat down, I, I just I think maybe just literally about five or ten minutes before we sat down, I saw that you did publish a, a comic book. So uh, I'll ask you to forgive me for not having any uh, immediate information on it, but I'd love to hear anything you want to tell me about it. This is called uh, my latest work. I have a lot of um, things on the go, um, but uh, the the prime one I'm plugging at the moment, I've just launched at the London Super Comic Con, is called Blood Fellas. It's a uh, horror crime mashup. Um, it's kind of the elevator pitch for it would be Walking Dead meets the Boardwalk Empire. It's <laughs> it's old school voodoo. It's zombies as you've never quite seen them before. Um, it's set in a, a mythical uh, um, Midwestern um, city called Atros City. 
um, uh, which is uh, ruled by the Zombioso, who are the undead gangsters. And it's kind of like a cross between Chicago and New Orleans, and it's set in the Prohibition era. Um, and uh, Zombioso they control um, the whole of Atroc City through cells of a, of a mystical drug called Ascension, which lets your soul, while you're still alive, um, leave your body and actually visit heaven um, for a brief amount of time. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's an homage to uh, the, the, what you call the pre-code crime and horror stories. They're things like EC, um, Tales from the Crypt, Crime Doesn't Pay, and I love all that stuff. And so it's a it's a it's a modern day tip of the hat to that. And a bit like Sin City, um, it's four stories which appear to be standalone, but each one actually expands upon the particular universe in which it sort of takes place. And each one's got a real sting in the tail and they all fit together to tell one um, complex story, that which is about standing. And redemption, and the uh, the basically the dehumanizing nature of violence, and it's got zombies and <laughs> brains being eaten, and and a whole load of blood, um, and and bullets galore. So it, it's the kind great. of zombie zombie gangster mashup you have always desperately wanted to see. And is that uh, is that available like right now? Could people find it on right now? If you type in Bloodfellas, or one word, a bit like Goodfellas, but put a B um, L on the front instead of the G, and type that into Amazon Bingo, it will come right up. It's available, ready for sale. Should be going out on Comicsology soon. Awesome, awesome. Well, well I'll tell you what. This is probably a. Uh, as good a place as any to, to wrap up, but I, I definitely don't want this to be your last time on the show because I've had a blast chatting with you. Me too, Martin. And uh, and I would actually let you know next now that now that we've had time to talk and I got to know you a little bit, uh, I look forward to getting back together and talking to you about uh, comic books, talking to you about your experience as a as a film uh, a film and music journalist and uh, your your experience with this as a, as a stand up comic. There's a million things I'd love to 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 get into next time around. Can I also plug two other things? As, as um, I pl- have uh, you plug as much ongoing- as you like. I have an ongoing um, superhero stroke sports strip um, with the American company um, Silver Phoenix Entertainment. That's called Roller Derby Drama. It's about superpowered roller derby girls saving the universe. It's a slightly off the wall um, kind of fun, um, all ages action oriented um, tale. And I've got a sci-fi strip running at the moment um, in a, a digital comic called Aces Weekly, which is put together by David Lloyd, who did uh, V for Vendetta with oh, yeah. Alan Moore, an artist of unimaginable talent. And he's put the um, uh, Aces Weekly together. It's an online comic uh, that you subscribe to that has some of the biggest names in the business working for it, from people like Herb Trimpey um, through to a whole host of, of first-rate comic talent, including David himself. And I've had a strip running in that for eight months called Parasassin, which is... Um, uh, an off-the-wall um, sci-fi uh, time travel political satire, and that's just coming to an end this month. It's building to a huge throbbing climax, um, and so do go online and check out Aces Weekly as well, uh, if not for Parasassin, for all the other amazing stories on there too. That's awesome. And actually what I'll do is uh, on the on the on the official website of, of the podcast, martinlestrapshow.com, I have a shop page, and I'll put some links up to to your book, so... After folks listen to our chat, they can just go to the shop page and uh, I'll give them a nice, convenient uh, uh, pathway to, to, to get some of your work. That will be fantastic and hugely appreciated. And, and if they like what they see and if they like what they heard, please come and hit me up on Twitter and Facebook and, uh, and um, our website. Just type my name, Jasper Bark, that's B-A-R-K as in Wolf, into the Internet and come and look for me. 
and um, and, and by all means, if I've sin- sincerely um, uh, turned your stomach with, with stories <laughs> like stuck on you, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough, as we say on the other podcast. Uh, okay, Jasper. Well, I, I, I'll tell you what. This was a, a really, really fun chat, and I, and I genuinely look forward to doing it again with you sometime. Me too, Martin. Thank you very much for having me. Well, there you have it, Jasper Bark. Unlike Mayweather versus Pacquiao. Jasper Bark most definitely lives up to the hype. So I I sincerely hope that you enjoyed listening to that conversation every bit as much as I enjoyed having it. And as as I mentioned, as you heard just uh, just a few minutes ago at the end of my conversation with Jasper, uh, I, I, I mentioned that I would post his book on the website, on the shop page, which I did. So... If you go to martinlestrapshow.com, click on the shop page, scroll down, look for the cover of his book, Stuck on You and Other Prime Cuts, go and click on that. It's going to send you to Amazon, but it will specifically send you to the Amazon page where you can purchase that book. And again, because you went through the website, martinlestrapshow.com, once you buy Jasper's book, Amazon's going to kick a few pennies back our way. And we get to reinvest those pennies back in the show to make this show as good as we can possibly make it for you. Which is what we strive to do week after week after week. Now, if you're not already subscribing to the podcast on iTunes, I encourage you to do that. Go on iTunes, subscribe to the show, because once you're subscribed, it's going to get dropped off in in your iTunes list. Every week, you don't even have to think about it. It just appears weekly. And so long as you're on iTunes anyway, go ahead and leave a review. We'd appreciate it. Uh, in fact, if you don't have the, the time or the inclination to actually type out a review, you can still just give the show a, a starred rating. And then uh, that, that counts every bit as well. And it helps us out because, you know, not only does it, uh, not only does it make us feel good, assuming you gave us a nice review, but not only does it make us feel good, it also makes the show more visible to potential listeners who don't yet know that we exist. So, you know, you want to help them out, don't you? And if you're not an iTunes listener, that's cool, too. You can also listen to the show on Stitcher Radio, which you can find at stitcher.com. Uh, you don't have to sign up or subscribe. You can just uh, go to Stitcher, look up the show, and listen to it. However, you can uh, sign up on Stitcher, and that way you've got a profile, and then you can start saving your favorite shows, including this one. So again, just makes your life easier if you like that sort of thing. And of course, there's always the old-fashioned way of listening to the show on it on the official website, martinlestrapshow.com. Uh, all sixty-seven episodes, of, uh, um, all sixty-seven episodes of the show are up there. For your convenience, I just—I don't know if you heard me pause just now. I was just—I uh, was—I was giving myself a, a mental beating. I was in my head, screaming at myself, like a, like you know, like 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 a like a misbehaving child. You know, I was basically in my head. I became a stage parent, and uh, who, whose kid just came off the stage after performance, and behind the curtains where nobody could see them, was pointing and screaming and, and berating their kid, saying, you know. The fuck is your problem? What are you doing? Why can't you be better? Stop making mistakes. 
you guys didn't hear that because it was all happening in my head. But um, I figured I would share that with you because if I say it out loud, then maybe I will shame myself into, into, into not abusing myself any longer. So we'll see how that works out. I'll, I'll keep you updated. Anyway, I want to thank my guest, Jasper Bark, for joining me on the, on the podcast. Uh, and I want to thank you guys for joining me again this week. Uh, if, you're, if this is your first time listening to the show, if you're a fan of Jasper Bark and you only came to listen to Jasper, first of all, I don't blame you. But second of all, I hope you stick around. And I hope you come back next week to listen to the show. And, in fact, I hope you, I hope you go backwards and listen to past episodes. Because if you liked this one then uh, there's a very high probability you will like the previous episodes of this podcast. So go ahead and check it out. And, of course, to my loyal listeners who come back week after week, I want to thank you guys. Uh, uh, you know, if it weren't for you, I don't know where I would find the motivation to keep doing this because as much as I like doing this, it helps to know that, uh, that I'm, not, I'm not sitting here talking into a vacuum. It's very encouraging to know uh, that when I, you know, when I put together one of these episodes that there's that there is a is a loyal and and uh, an excited group of listeners waiting to see uh you know what's coming up next. I want to thank you guys. And that's going to do it this week for the Martin Lestrap Show podcast hour. Uh I think I thanked everybody. So I guess we can move on from there, can't we? So uh until next time, I will see you on the other side. <laughs>